much for this day. We thank you for this time. And Father, may you use such a poignant passage, such a powerful passage, as we open up your word this morning. May your Holy Spirit, even now, come and speak and empower. We bless you. We love you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. The last time we were together, we looked at 1 John 1, 5 through 7. We're going to continue and finish up this little section in 1 John. We talked about what it means to walk in the light of Jesus. We talked about those who are truly those of the light, which are the redeemed, and those who walk in darkness and are not in the light, which are those who are lost. Today we will be looking at the last three verses of 1 John 1, which are verses 8 through 10. You can turn there. 1 John 1, verses 8 through 10, which reads, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. We know that light exposes what? Darkness. The darkness. And sin, which we talked about the last time in verses 5 through 7. So true believers are not only marked by living a life of holiness, but they are also marked by living a life of confessing sin. This becomes quite apparent in light of God's perfect character. And just to recap and as a reminder, John says in 1 John 1, 3, that true believers have fellowship with God. And in verse 5, he says that God is light. God is light. Since genuine believers have fellowship with the true and living God who is light, real Christians walk in what? Light. They walk in light. John tells us in 1 John 1 verses 5 through 7. The fact of the matter is, is that a walk in the light of God's truth and holiness will uncover sin. Those who are truly believers will confess their sins. Now, first we have to look at the biblical definition of confession. I think we have talked about this before in the original language. The word confess means to say the same thing as. Who are we confessing our sin to? To God. None other than to the true and living God. And what we have to remember is that sin is not simply a mistake, but sin is Something that offends a most holy and righteous God. 
So someone may say, what exactly does God say about our sin? Glad you asked. The psalmist tells us in Psalm chapter 5, verses 4 to 5, where he says, and turn there if you like, Psalm chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. That's verse 6 as well. So since there's no evil in God, we know that as new creatures in Christ that he takes no pleasure in our what? Sin. In our sin. We know that there's no evil in God. And know that we should not have ongoing sin in our lives. We all know that as sinful creatures, we in no way are able to stand before a holy and righteous God. Are we? Absolutely not. Because of our sin, we would be obliterated instantly. We know that as sinners, we are deserving of God's hatred toward us because he hates our what? Sin. Sin. As true believers in Christ, we too should hate our sin and should cause us to desire to seek and live holy lives and have victory over sin. We know that can only happen through the power of Christ. We have to come to grips with and understand the gravity of our sin before holy God. We cannot look upon sin. He cannot look upon sin in any form or fashion. I often think of Achan in Joshua 7. When he had taken the spoils that he should not have taken. It has been said of Achan, Achan that he was aching to sin. Couldn't wait to get his hands on those spoils. Psalm 51 may be the most familiar and clearest passage that talks about confession. And I know that David once before went through this psalm here. This is David's confession after his sin with Bathsheba. And here David says in verses 1 to 3, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions, and, and my sin is ever before me. From this psalm we see where we are to take personal responsibility for our sin. Remember, David has sinned against Bathsheba, Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. But most of all, whom had he sinned against? He had sinned against God. He doesn't start blame-shifting but makes it very personal. And in verse 1, he says, blot out my transgressions. And in verse 2, he says, wash me thoroughly from my sin. And in verse 3, he says, for I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. 
In verse 4, David knows that his sin is primarily against God. He knows that God is perfectly righteous in bringing judgment upon him. That is why he says, against you, you only have our sin and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. David knew he deserved God's judgment for his sin. So we likewise deserve God's judgment when we sin. In verse 5, David confesses that he was a sinner even from his birth, just as we likewise are sinners from birth. That is why he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And I know we all think that babies are cute and cuddly, and yes, they are. <laughs> but they're cute and cuddly little sinners. And that is why Vodi Bacham says they are vipers in diapers. <laughs> David knows that he needs the Lord's cleansing just as we do. That is why he says in verses 7 through 10, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And I, I know we don't normally go around saying that you want to be washed with hyssop. And it is not a word that we hear used every day. And I know that many of you may not even know what hyssop is. Most hyssop plants were shrubs with low, bushy stalks and would grow to be around one and a half feet tall, but some could grow to be anywhere from three to four feet tall. We know this was possible because if you remember when Jesus was on the cross, he was offered a sponge of vinegar that was held up on a branch of hyssop. You may recall also that it was used by the Israelites in Exodus 12, 22, when they were told to take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in blood. What were they to do with it? Sprinkle it on the lentils and on the doorposts. And in the Old Testament, the priest would actually use it to sprinkle blood or water on someone so that they would be declared ceremonially clean from disease such as leprosy or to clean someone who had touched a dead body. In Psalm 51, hyssop is used in a spiritual sense to, to speak of David's longing to be cleansed from his sin. God, by nature, is a forgiving God. Is he not? Yes, he is. And he forgives David's sin, just as he forgives us of our sin. David ends his great psalm in verses 8 to 10 by saying, Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And then the verse that most of us know in verse 10 where he says, Create in me a what? A clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me.
we would all be in agreement so that we so need God to cleanse and to change our lives, do we not? Yes. John very plainly says in 1 John 1 verse, verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. This is the same thing as saying if you do not confess your sin, then you are truly not a believer or child of God. Listen, friends, true believers confess their sins. In other words, if you, if you say you have fellowship with God, then you will confess your sins. So John says, if we say that we have no sin, in the, in the original, this literally says, we are having no sin. These are people who go on, go so far as even denying the fact that they even have a sin nature. They are self-deceived. This is a person who even denies that he even sins anymore at all. Remember, it is like those old Gnostics who said that sin was only in their flesh. I'm good, my spirit. And they would say that their spirit was sinless. Listen, beloved, someone who thinks like that does not need the cleansing blood of Christ because in their messed up thinking, they think that they have nothing to be cleansed of. These are people who rename their sins to make them sound as if they are really not sins. They may say, oh, I have a psychological disease. Or they may say, I have too much stress. So that is why I sin. Are you kidding me? If that is the case, then we all have a psychological disease and we're all stressed. So we don't sin because we so-called have a psychological disease or are stressed. That could be nowhere further from the truth. That is why you call trying that is what you call trying to excuse your sin away. That is why John says, if we do that, then the truth is not in us. John goes on to say that those who deny or won't confess their sin, then the truth of God's word is not in them. Someone has very well said, N-O, sin, nature, N-O, salvation. No sin nature, no salvation. And I would take that a little further to say if you K-N-O-W, your sin nature, you K-N-O-W, salvation. So if you know your sin nature, you will know your salvation, that you are saved. Then we come to a very familiar and most quoted verse in verse 9 where John says, if we do what? Confess our sins. He is what? Faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So is John saying there is a condition for forgiveness? Absolutely not. The fact of the matter is that once you 
place your trust and faith in Christ alone for salvation, you were immediately cleansed and forgiven of your sins. Because of Christ's death on the cross, he only forgives and cleanses those who are confessing their sins. 1 John 1.9 could be understood as, if we are the ones confessing our sins, he is forgiving us. Listen, friend, God only forgives those who are confessing their sins. And who confesses their sins? Believers or Christians. So who would be the ones who are not confessing their sins? None other than unbelievers. John was not saying you must confess your sins or God won't grant you forgiveness. But what he was saying is that God is continually cleansing the sins of those who are confessing. One way to define a Christian is to define them as one who agrees with God that he or she is a what? Sinner. Sinner. You really can't call yourself a believer if you have not. No one can enter heaven if he does not admit that he is a sinner in need of Christ. The ones who admit that they are sinners are the ones that God cleanses. Then the question comes, what about someone who once confessed his sins but doesn't confess them anymore? The fact of the matter is is that that person was probably never cleansed. One indication of true salvation is that a person will keep confessing his sin. In the New King James Version, in verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What did John mean by God being just and forgiving of sin? In human terms, it is sometimes hard for us to wrap our minds around that. What if someone had killed several people and he was standing before the judge and said, okay, I'm sorry for what I did. And what if the judge said, okay, I know you're sorry, you know, that you killed those people. Go ahead and go free. Would that be justice? Would that be a just judge? No. But dear friends, this is how God can be just and forgive sins. It is because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. So praise God, justice is satisfied. It reminds me of the song, He Will Hold Me Fast. You know, if any of you have heard that before, it's a song by Matt Merker. And the third verse of the song says, For my life he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Paul says it best in Romans 3, verses 25 through 26, where he says, Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration. I say of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
Reformation Day, which is coming real soon, next Monday, is a big celebration at our home. And leading up to it, we often watch several movies about the reformers. And of course, one of the reformers that we are very familiar with is none other than Martin Luther. We watch a series of lectures by R.C. Sproul, and one of the lectures is on justification. Sproul talks about Luther and how at the heart of the conversation of the 16th century was how could God declare anyone righteous in his sight? Or how can an unjust person ever be righteous before a holy God? The main issue centered around imputation. Roman Catholics believe that the righteousness that they have been, that righteousness has been poured into them. And it's a, it's a righteousness of their own. It's their own righteousness. Whereas Protestants believe that God imputes righteousness, someone else's righteousness to us, namely Christ's righteousness. I took two years of Latin in high school, and although it is a dead language, it always seemed to make me come alive because of the meanings behind the words. In this whole discussion around imputation, Luther used the phrase, and this is how sprawling you could just hear him as he's writing this on the board, simul et pecare. Simul is the same. It's from where we get the word simultaneous. Et is and. Pecare is sinners. I left out a phrase. Simul justice et pecare. Justice is the word from which we get the word justice. So this means that in our justification, we are one in the same, righteous and sinners. I know it sounds like somewhat of an oxymoron or opposite, but in one sense, we are just, and in another sense, we are sinners. We are considered righteous because of Christ's righteousness. The righteousness that is ours is ours by faith, and it is what has been accomplished by Christ. Sproul calls it double imputation. My sin is imputed to Jesus. His righteousness is imputed to me. So it's an exchange. Him taking all of my sin and in exchange him giving me his righteousness. Imputation. So he is both the just and the justifier. What you have to understand is that in 1 John 1, 9, John is not so much talking about continuous forgiveness, but individual forgiveness. He is talking about God forgiving individual acts of sin and not continuous sins. This is not habitual sin. Habitual sin is not something that marks a true believer 
in Christ. John is saying that because believers have been forgiven, they will confess their sins. I would also say that since believers have been forgiven so much, they should willingly confess much. So what is true confession? There are several views on what it means to confess sin. One which we all may be very familiar with is that it's the Catholic view, where one goes into a little box, a confessional box, and there's a priest there, and they go and confess their sins before a priest. Catholics see this as a very noteworthy act and see it as something that gains them forgiveness. One view says that you are only to be conscious of your sin. Being conscious of your sin is all well and good, but it is not agreeing with God about your sin. There is another view which is called the psychological view, which says you really don't have to confess your sins because God is taking care of your sins. They believe you only have to confess them so that you will know what is going on, which is a way to say you have, that's called good therapy. I had to chuckle when I read that. They say God wants to refine you through your sorrow, and they say you need to pour your heart out. Their whole premise is that you want to help people feel good about feeling bad, <laughs> whatever that means. <laughs> then they will feel forgiven and experience healing. All of that sounds lofty, but it does not get to what God says about your sin and that you need to say the same thing that God says about your sin. A very popular view was that you only have to confess your sin only one time, and that is the time that you were saved. I don't know if you've ever heard that view, but I did a lot growing up. What you have to understand is that the word confess is in the present tense and refers to continuous confession, continuous. It is not a one-time thing. One of the most popular views is that forgiveness is based on whether a person confesses or not. Many use this type of formula and say that when a believer sins, his fellowship with God is broken. But we know that is not the case. We talked about this before because if their fellowship with God was broken, then they would not be a believer. They believe that the fellowship can only be restored by the person confessing their sin. One commentator says, confessed sin will be forgiven. Unconfessed sins will remain in a person until the judgment seat of Christ. Then he will deal with them. That's a bunch of hogwash. He goes on to say that sin can never be cleansed from us until it has been confessed by us. In essence, he was saying that a Christian can have unforgiven sin. Listen, beloved, a Christian cannot have unforgiven sin. The biblical and correct view is that a believer will continuously acknowledge to God that he is a sinner. This is the person who shows he is forgiven and a true believer. John is not saying in this verse that if you confess one sin, you are forgiven once, or if you confess two sins, you are forgiven twice, or if you confess three sins, you are forgiven three times. 
So one mark of a Christian is that he continuously confesses his sin. And who are we confess? Who are we to confess to whom we have said before? We are to confess to God. We are called to confess our sins, but this does not grant us forgiveness, but shows us that we have been forgiven. Just as our works do not save us, but they show that we are saved. A confessor is a possessor. I learned in seminary that repentance is not just saying you are sorry over your sin. Being sorry can be very superficial. Paul says this about repentance in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Biblical confession has to do with sorrow over our sin. So Paul is not just talking about feeling bad about what they have done after their sinful conduct, because let's be frank about it. Feeling bad about a sin can sometimes just lead to being depressed, feeling hopeless, or even wanting to get rid of your own life. When someone has truly repented, there will be a real change of heart and mind and will do whatever it takes to deal with sin. This may mean that the Lord will have to take away material things or even take away a loved one. True believers are those who constantly confess their sins and demonstrate by their lives that their desires are to follow Christ and to live holy lives before them. They know that they have been forgiven of their sins and know that they are being cleansed of their sins. John the Baptist, he was probably <laughs> the favorite, and I can just always just hear in the back of my mind, he, he was the one who preached repentance saying that it was necessary to get into heaven. Matthew 2, 4 through 12, Luke 3, 4 through 14. Jesus called for people to admit their sin and called for repentance for those who wanted salvation in Matthew 4, 17. He even called them to repent or perish. Luke 13, 3 and 5. The repentance he called for was for self-denial from Luke 9, 23 to 26 and hatred of self. From Luke 14, 25 through 27. The apostles' call was for repentance when they talked about in Acts 17, 30, that God calls upon sinners everywhere to do what? Repent. Repent. So what is true repentance? One of our children asked me this question last week. And it was also mentioned at our boys' chapel last week at Cedarville. And you're telling the Lord you did something sinful that you don't want to do it anymore. It is a change of the mind and of the will. And I think I may have demonstrated this before, but someone may not have gotten it. So if you are walking this way and your, your, your lifestyle is sinful, you're going in a sinful, worldly lifestyle. Repentance is actually taking a 180-degree turn and not going in that direction of unworldliness, of ungodliness, turning to the Lord and going in the direction that he wants you to go in godliness 
and in the ways of Christ. That is what repentance is. It is a change of mind and of the will. It is good to be honest with God and never try to cover up your sin. Listen, beloved, if you have a shallow relationship with God, then your confession will be shallow. It is almost like a blanket confession. And you may say something like, Lord, I sinned again today, and you know it. I have done many things that offend you, and you say, amen. There's your confession. You have never really called sin what sin is. You just put a blanket on it and say, oh, everything I did, you know everything I did. But you haven't specifically named those sins. Just as we pray specifically, so should we confess specifically. Thomas Watson was a Puritan pastor of the 17th century, and he wrote a book on the doctrine of repentance. And six points he gives on true repentance. One is the sight of sin. Simply put, Watson believed you must first see your sin before you can repent of it. He says, a man must first recognize and consider what his sin is and know the plague of his heart before he can be duly humble for it. The eye is made both for seeing and weeping. Sin must first be seen before it can be wept for. Secondly, he says, repentance is a sorrow for sin. He believed that true repentance must involve sorrow, not merely for the consequences of our sin, but for sinning against God and the free grace that he has given us in Jesus. He that can believe without doubting suspect, without doubting, suspect his faith, and he that can repent without sorrowing suspect his repentance. This sorrow for sin is not superficial. It is a holy agony. True godly sorrow is inward in two ways. He said it is a sorrow of the heart. The sorrow of hypocrites lies in their faces. They disfigure their faces, Matthew 6, 16. Godly sorrow goes deep like a vein which bleeds inwardly. The heart bleeds for sin. They were pricked in their hearts at 2.37. As the heart bears a chief part in sinning, so it must be in sorrowing. He said it is, it is a sorrow for heart sins. The first outbreaks and risings of sin, the true mourner grieves for the root of bitterness, even though it never blossoms into act. A wicked man may be troubled for scandalous sins. A real convert laments heart sins. Godly sorrow is sincere. Hypocrites grieve only for the bitter consequence of sin. Godly sorrow, however, is chiefly for the trespass against God. So that even if there were no conscience to smite, no devil to accuse, no hell to punish, yet the soul would still be grieved because of the prejudice done to God. Godly sorrow is trusting. It is intermixed with faith. Spiritual sorrow will sink the heart if the pulley of faith does not raise it. As our sin is ever before, so God's promise must be ever before us. As we much feel our sin, so we must Look up to Christ, our brazen serpent. Thirdly, he says, confession of sin. 
not just any confession, confession that is voluntary, specific, and sincere. Sorrow is such a vehement passion that it will have vent. It, it vents itself at the eyes by weeping and at the tongue by confession. The children of Israel stood and confessed their sins in Nehemiah 9.2. When we come before God, however, we must accuse ourselves. And the truth is that by this self-accusing, we prevent Satan's accusing. The confessions of sin may be right and genuine. These qualifications are requisite. Confession must be voluntary, must come as water out of a spring freely. Confession must be with compunction. The heart must deeply resent it. A natural man's confessions run through him as water through a pipe. They do not at all affect him, but true confession leaves heart-wounding impressions. It is one thing to confess sin and another thing to feel sin. Confession must be sincere. Our hearts must go along with our confessions. He is convinced of the sins he confesses and abhors the sins he is convinced of. In true confession, a man particularizes sin. A wicked man acknowledges he is a sinner in general. A true convert acknowledges his particular sin. We must confess, confess our sins with resolution not to do them again. What king will pardon that man who, after he has confessed his treason, practices new treason? Fourth, he says it's a shame for sin. This is probably the most controversial of all six components, since shame has become such a negative word in our modern lexicon. But in Watson's words, Blushing is the color of virtue. The fourth ingredient in repentance is shame, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, from Ezekiel 43.10. Blushing is the color of virtue. When the heart has been made black with sin, grace makes the face red with the blushing. I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face, Ezra 9.6. The repentant prodigal was so ashamed of his excess that he thought himself not worthy to be called a son anymore, Luke 15.21. Repentance causes a holy bashfulness. If Christ's blood were not at the sinner's heart, there would not so much blood come in the face. Hatred of sin, number five. According to Watson, the fifth ingredient of true repentance is hatred of sin. Firstly, there is hatred or loathing of abominations. Ye shall loathe yourselves for your iniquities, Ezekiel 36, 31. A true penitent is a sin loather. If a man loathe that which makes his stomach sick, much more will he loathe that which makes his conscience sick. It is more to loathe sin than to leave it. One may leave sin for fear as in a storm. The plate and jewels are cast overboard, but the nauseating and loathing of sin argues a detestation of it. Christ is never loved till sin is loathed. Sound repentance begins in the love of God and ends in the hatred of sin and sixthly, turning from sin. The sixth ingredient in repentance is turning from sin. True repentance, like aquafortis, nitric acid, eats asunder the iron chain of sin. Therefore, weeping and turning are put together, Joel 2.12. This turning from sin is called a forsaking of sin, Isaiah 55.7. As a man forsakes the company of a thief or a sorcerer, dying to sin is the life of repentance. There's a change wrought in the heart. The flinty heart has become fleshy. Satan would have Christ prove his deity by turning stones into bread. Christ has wrought a far greater miracle in making stones become flesh. In repentance, Christ turns a heart of stone into flesh. 
There's a change wrought in the life. Turning from sin is so visible that others may discern it. Therefore, it is called a change from darkness to light. Ephesians 5.8. The word forgive here in verse 9 means to send away or to get rid of the charges. It means the debt has been canceled and paid in full. In Bible days, when someone committed a crime, it he was given a paper with a crime listed on it. And once the person had paid the sentence for the crime, the person was given the paper that had his crime listed on it. And on the paper, it was stamped, tetelestai, which means paid in full. The debt has been canceled. So if someone were to ever come to him and say, well, you didn't pay out your sentence. It wasn't finished. It wasn't completed. He could show them this paper. And with it stamped, tetelestai, it is finished, paid in full. The phrase to cleanse means to purify from the stain and pollution of sin. The believer rests in the fact that he has been cleansed from the result of sin as well as the origin of sin. John goes on to say that we are cleansed from all unrighteousness. This means that we are cleansed from every kind of mishap and measure up to the right standard that God gives in his word. John starts off this verse by talking about how God is faithful. In other words, God keeps, God is a covenant-keeping God who forgives the sins of those who repent and put their trust in Jesus Christ. So one may say, how can God be righteous in forgiving guilty sinners? The beautiful picture is that God in Christ paid the penalty of our sins against him. God can righteously forgive those who come to him in faith because Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it what? White as snow. God showed his approval of Christ dying in my place when he raised him from the dead. Because Christ now lives, those who have repented and put their trust in him alone for eternal life shall also live and have life. John ends this chapter with verse 10, which says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is the worst claim a person can make. The person in verse 6 admits that he has sinned in his life. The person in verse 8 says that he used to sin, but he is now perfect. The person in verse 10 is the worst because he says he has never sinned. He is making God out to be a liar, and we know that can't be the case. They make him out to be a liar because Romans 3.23 tells us that how many have sinned? All have sinned. They are in essence saying that they do not need a savior because they have never sinned. Titus 1.2 tells us that God cannot lie. Some of you today know that you have never truly repented of your sins and need to once and for all repent of your sins and receive Christ's cleansing and forgiveness. And some of you today know that you have a sin that you have not confessed before God and are not experiencing the power and freedom of forgiveness. Some of you need to go and confess your sins and make wrongs right between someone in the congreg this congregation or even someone in your family who you may not have spoken to in years, you need to go and make things right as best as can be on your part.
Examine your hearts today and do business with God and make things right with others. We know that this is a weighty, weighty message that John has given us an admonition, but this is a message to believers. So may the Lord put his searchlight in our hearts even now and help us to truly know where we are in our faith. Let's pray. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, we know and we want to agree and say the same thing that you say about our sin. We know you are faithful, God. You are both just and the justifier. Father, help us to do introspection afresh and anew even this day. You would, your Holy Spirit would shine even now in our hearts and our lives to point out those things, those sins, so-called hidden sins that we have not confessed to you and that we would make things right with you and with others. We do know that you are uh, a covenant-keeping God, and so we, we thank you for your promises that you keep. You are faithful, God, and just and righteous. We love you and we bless you and we pray all of this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. And